Again, if you're just joining us this morning, we'd like to welcome you to Lighty's Church. Uh, as we go to read the scriptures, the, I'm going to reverse the reading as is indicated here in your uh, bulletin, uh, starting with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the pew in front of you. The page numbers are listed in your bulletin. Of course, the writer of Hebrews is just referred to the great cloud of witnesses, people who have been faithfully and who have faithfully followed the Lord and lived for Him. And uh, we're going to get this admonition in light of these great examples. Listen here to God's Word, beginning at verse 1, chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when uh, you have been reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment does not seem to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Amen. Our gospel reading is found in John chapter 17. Of course, this is a familiar passage to most. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. We'll begin at verse 1 and go to verse 21. Listen here to God's word. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that of all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave, have given me to do. Now, Father, 
glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they have received him and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things are mi- that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, and the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, that I, and not one of them perished, not but the son of perdition, so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled." But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Amen. Now, our primary text for this morning is found in Philippians chapter 1, and we will be reading verses 1 through 11. This is one of the Apostle Paul's prison epistles, and this is a church that um, he received help from, and he was thanking them for their gracious gift to him while in prison, as well as encouraging them and rejoicing in them so that they might continue in the things of the Lord. Listen here to God's word. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. At this time, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and silently meditate upon God's word that we've read this morning. Father in heaven, we come in Jesus' name. And we come through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we come with the knowledge of your word even read this morning. Because we want you to do that gracious work through your word, by your spirit in our lives to cause us to to become more and more the people of God in this world. We long, we thirst for you, the living God. We want, as your people, to be faithful in the way in which we live and the way in which we witness for you. So we ask in Jesus' name that you would graciously and supernaturally work in our hearts and lives, transforming and making us like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. As was alluded to even during our praise time together, it has been said many times lately that our generation is witnessing a great unraveling of our nation. That the United States of America is becoming no more united. That we are drifting so rapidly away from the moorings of our republic that we can almost see and and really no longer say that we are one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Some do attribute the decaying of our republic and the movement that we often hear as a collapse as being triggered by the COVID crisis, which is indeed destabilizing our education, our commerce, our society, 
and our family structures with more and more restraint and restrictions nationwide. Still others are pointing to a more fundamental concern that the, there is in our day a great moral divide on what is truth. And this is recently evidenced by the way in which our national elections are being contested today. This spectacle, if you will, of political manipulation and maneuvering has its roots in the systematic dismantling of the Judeo-Christian principles and values we hold to. And it's being done through a organized and systematized infiltration of a irreligious socialism whose, if you will, purpose is to assault and to undermine our chief institutions of government, of our legislator, of, of our education, of media, of society, of the church, and even the family. It's identified as cultural Marxism. This belief is fueling these revolutionary activities that are going on in our country. And the revolution that is going on in our country by cultural Marxism and those who espouse to it is truly against all governing authorities and constitutional laws, and it's happening in a way that is unprecedented. And its underlying, if you will, purpose, its insidious design is to seize possessions and power. And we're seeing it through such groups like Black Lives Matter, and Antiva. And my question to you as fellow believer in Christ, are these the days in which we as Christians live? Because unless we can answer that question correctly, we can just blow all this off. If you think that this has not happened, then let me ask you, what has been occurring in our public school system, in the way our society operates, in regard to the, the propagation of media and the disintegration of our families and its structures? Let me take this one step further. What do you think would happen if there was irrefutable evidence uncovered that proved that this last election count was fraudulent across the land? 
And that the federal Supreme Court, having hearing the evidence, overturns the election results and rules our current president re-elected. Yes, we all, we all pray for a peaceful coexistence among our citizenry. The, the scriptures themselves teach us that we are to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to pray for our governing authorities so that we may live peaceably. But the recent clashes of opposing political systems of thought accompanied by organized aggressive actions almost makes it seem like a friendly cooperation among our citizens is not possible. How then are we, as followers of Christ, to deal with this turbulent environment of, natural, of, of national uncertainty, combined with this apparent rage and hostility and censorship that is going on today. What steps should believers take in these days of growing volatility and hostility toward God, towards God's truth, and to His church? How do we not succumb to the fear and the worry that is present in our society today, but instead find joyous rest and comfort in the Lord Jesus? Well, I trust that as we go through this study in the letter of Philippians, we'll be able to uncover some precious spiritual nuggets of truth that will help us to continue on to live by faith. You see, though this letter of Philippians has been characterized or portrayed as a letter of joy and rejoicing in God's salvation through Christ, the setting in which it is written in the history of that time is anything but harmonious and tranquil for the Christian church. In fact, we know very clearly that the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, he wrote it while he was a prisoner in Rome in A.D. 61. And he wrote it to this church in Philippi, which was a Roman colony in the Roman province of Macedonia. And the emperor of Rome at that time was Nero. And despite the hostile and politically corrupt climate in which Paul is writing, his opening words as a Roman citizen, as a 
Roman prisoner being prosecuted for the gospel of Christ begins with Paul and Timothy identified as bondservants of Christ Jesus. And they do it joyfully, giving thanks to God for these believers in the Philippian church. And I'd like to point to you as we look at this passage and some of those other passages that we've read this morning, that Paul actually gives us five transcendent qualities that Paul wants to helpfully, if you will, ascribe to this church in their day to encourage them as he gives thanks to God for them. The first one is found there in verses 1 and 2. We call it the salutation or the opening greeting, but there's much more involved in what Paul is saying here through his opening words. You see, in verses 1 and 2, Paul is affirming their redemptive relationship with God, being in union with Christ. In fact, he calls them here in verse 1, saints in Christ Jesus. And he does so as he, um, if you will, reminds them of the grace and the peace that is coming from God their Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does this say to them as believers in the first century, in those times? similar to our own. Well, it tells them, number one, that they are beloved of God. That God has set his love on them and has effectually called them as his chosen ones for salvation in Jesus Christ. And that will never change. That they are, as he says here, saints. They're set apart from their sin to God. They are, if you will, his holy ones. And by the very nature of them being the assembled church, having overseers and deacons, they are members of God's household. God is Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. Divine grace and peace is abounding to them. And God's grace and peace only comes to those who are His, who through faith in Christ have received a completed work of redemption and that nothing can separate them from God's love. So what is God, through Paul, trying to say to this church in their own politically corrupt climate? He's telling them, most assuredly, that they need to keep faith focused on that inseparable union 
They have in Christ. In fact, as we look at in the Gospel of John, John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer to the Father, he also tells us that as saints, we are part of what God has chosen to do in this world. Jesus identifies these believers in verse 2 and verse 6 of John 17 as all who you, Father, have given to him, me. And that in verse 6 he says, to the men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me. And coupled with this truth, as we read on in this prayer, nearing the end of what Jesus is saying to his Father, he gives this profound understanding, if you will, that we have been separated from the world to be set apart, if you will, and sanctified by God and for God. In fact, he says here in John chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, you are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he asks the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Jesus' prayer is that we might become more and more by the word of God separated unto God. We have been taken out of the world and we are now God's. And God, through his word, wants to make us his holy people. His holy ones in the truth. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Yes, we are saints, positionally because of God's grace as he has declared us righteous by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But God has also set us apart so that we become experientially, more and more, his holy ones through our new life in Jesus Christ. God graces us, if you will, all as we're, as we're, as we're growing in faith. He graces us through the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit and through the washing of regeneration with the Word. And therefore, Paul wants them to understand as saints that they need to keep growing closer in their relationship to God. We sing a uh, praise song here that uh, always pulls on my heart because it simply focuses us on Jesus. It goes like this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing.
I hope that's your pursuit. I hope it continues to be, by God's grace, my pursuit. Knowing Jesus. Knowing Him. There is no greater thing. The second point that he makes here that we need to realize in the day in which we're living, and I believe not too dissimilar to the lives of believers in the first century, is this. Paul says in verses 3 through 5 that he gives thanks to God, always offering up prayer with joy in his every prayer for them all. Why? Because of verse 5. In view of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, we as God's people, like they, uh, as, as examples to us today, were and are to bear spiritual fruit for God. For this particular church, he says, from the onset of their conversion, their new birth in Jesus Christ, they were fruit-bearing, and that that spiritual fruitfulness was even continuing on as the time of this letter. They were, by faith, if you will, great examples for us because they were living for God. And they were bearing eternal fruit for God through their partnership with Paul in the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> to show that this was an ongoing process that was going on in these believers' life, all you have to do is turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians and chapter 8. And look what Paul says about the churches in Macedonia. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. You see, this was the mentality of the renewing life of Christ being lived out in the Macedonian churches even during the time when Paul was writing 2 Corinthians. They were selfless in their generosity. They wanted to send love gifts to their fellow believers in Jerusalem. And yet they were doing it out of their own state of poverty because they saw their brothers and sisters needier than themselves. And the point of this is we need to keep on doing the works of God in the midst of what we're facing today. Remember his words here. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. 
<coughs> Excuse me. Back to Philippians and verse 6. For Paul wants them to know how secure they are in their relationship with Christ as members of his church. Paul expresses confidence in this verse that God, who's started this work of salvation in their life, will bring it to its completion until the day of Christ. He wanted them to know that Jesus' need is coming again in power and in great glory to receive his bride, the church, as he promised. In fact, it was part of his prayer, his high priestly prayer there in John chapter 17 and verse 24 where we read, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Paul, in his opening words of thanksgiving about this church, wants them to know the reality of Christ's return. And it is a repeated theme of Paul throughout his epistles of this glorious hope of the great appearing of our great God and Savior who will take us home. And this is a promise for every age, even today. And Paul, through this letter, wants them to be mindful of God's eternal plan for each one of them. What is the reason for him wanting to be an encouragement and a help and, and, and being joyous about this particular church during this time of corruption and confusion politically? Well, he gives it to us. The impetus for this prayer is his commitment of love for them. I have you in my heart, he says. Both in his imprisonment as well as in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, he knows by their engagement in gospel ministry with him that they are sharers with him. And he goes on to say that he has this deep longing for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. The fourth point comes in verses 9 and 10 as he continues this prayerful time of encouragement for the believers of that day. He prays that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Despite all the demands, the disappointments, the distractions, the persecutions that can come in this life, Paul's prayer focuses on them, 
that God might answer and deepen and widen their love for God and His will for their life in real knowledge and in all discernment. The reason why this is so important for us is this. A lot of times we separate love from knowledge and discernment. And Paul wants us to understand, as they should understand, that they need to be growing in the knowledge and in the wisdom and the insights of God, because in doing so, they will grow in their love for God and for one another. And this should dispel any notion that loving God and loving others is only some sentimental sort of uh, exercise of emotion. It's not. Paul is praying that they achieve, if you will, a greater renewal of recurring fillings of spiritual knowledge and wisdom and discernment and insight. Why? So that they can approve the things that are excellent. Boy, in the day and age we're living in, with all of the the things pressing in on us and pushing us and trying to get our attention and to move away from the things of God, we need to hear this. God wants us to approve the things that are excellent. Why? So that we might be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. In other words, keep abounding in the love of God by growing in spiritual knowledge and discernment from God so that you might be all that God wants you to be. Are these not the qualities or goals that we hope to reach as we live for God in this world? I hope so. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, Paul says this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That takes a lifetime, doesn't it? That takes a real sense of purpose and energy and sacrifice in order to attain. There must be things that are cut out so that this can move in. Finally, in verse 11... There's a lot more I could say, but finally in verse 11, Paul wants them in their transforming that's going on because they're in Christ to know that this is going to generate, if you will, righteous conduct that brings glory to God. 
fact, Paul teaches right in this passage, verse 11, that we have been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, Paul is foreseeing in them, and we should be foreseeing what God's going to do in us, if you will, that we have been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And that there will be rich and bountiful fruit, bringing harvest for God through our lives. That we'll give evidence daily of the fruit of the Holy Spirit as is given there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. That we'll have the fruit of righteousness that wins souls, as is indicated in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30. That we'll have a, a growing wisdom that comes from God, whose seed is the fruit of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. As it says there in James chapter 3, verse 18. And all of these, if you will, byproducts are by a grace-filled, spirit-led relationship with our God through Christ. We've been saved unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in. We are to bear much fruit and so prove to be Jesus' disciples. And therefore, let us take the admonition that the writer of the Hebrew gives us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility against sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And near the end there, he says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, keep steadfast Keep unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in Him. As John wrote in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 17, he said this. It's a great perspective for all of us. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Therefore, let us get hold of this joyous letter 
that's telling us of who we are in Christ and what we need to keep pursuing in our relationship to Christ. By keeping a faith focused on that inseparable union that we have in Christ, that we keep growing closer in our relationship with God, that we be mindful that God's eternal plan of salvation is to us assured. That we keep abounding in love by growing spiritually in knowledge and discernment from God so that we might be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. And then to keep steadfast, bearing fruit, for God, to the praise of His glory. If you happen to be here today or are viewing this service virtually and you do not know God and His salvation for you, let me share the gospel with you shortly. I want you to know that heaven, eternal life, is a free gift from God. We cannot earn it, nor do we deserve it. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And it is by God's grace that we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God not the result of works, lest we should boast. Second, we're all sinners. And as sinners, we're separated from a holy God. For we have all sinned, and we've all fallen short of God's glory. God's standard is and always will be perfection. As Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But God is merciful because God is love. But He's also just. And therefore, He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Exodus 34, 7. And God solved the problem of our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the infinite God who became man and lived among us. And the writer of John says, and they beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what he did while he was on this earth is he so loved us that he was willing to lay down his life for us, even on the cross, where he suffered and he died to pay the penalty for our sins and to purchase a place in heaven for us, which can now be offered as a free gift. And we're invited, come unto me, all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls.
for my burden is easy, my load is light. And the way you come to receive this gift that he has purchased with his own blood is by faith. We receive the free gift of eternal life by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. So that our sins can be forgiven. So that we can be part of the family of God, the household of faith. If you have never done that, may I ask you, today could be the day of salvation for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen.